2: Is a, is a kind of odd doctrine in Christianity, in Catholicism in particular, for, for one reason, which is that many of the other central doctrines of the faith have dogmatic, dogmatic definitions around them, like hedging them around, saying, you, have to, you sort of have to believe these things about it, you can't believe those things. So there's the Trinity, there's a particular model of the Trinity. There's different ways of understanding that model, but there's a particular model that's endorsed by the early councils of the church and other models that are rejected. Uh, That's true for the person of Christ as well, right? Christ is one person, two natures. Um, He has two wills. There's two energies. So there's all these sort of dogmatic language about what you have to believe about Christ, the person of Christ, in order to be a Christian. You don't get a similar kind of thing with the atonement, with the work of Christ. What does Christ do for us? Well, there's lots of different theories, and the theories tend not to be condemned, there's not, like, one theory you have to believe in, exactly, that, that's sort of in charge of all the other theories. So what you end up with is a kind of, like, you know, uh, the, the, the positive way of saying it is, like, a great diversity of things. The negative way to say it is, like, kind of a mess. Like, you just have lots of different models that people just sort of throw on the wall, and some of them stick. But they're not really organized, um, and it's hard to see which ones are better than which others, which sort of different aspects of the problem they're responding to so what I'm going to try to do tonight is go through the major models and organize them somewhat. I'll go through them sort of roughly historically, when they emerge in the church, when they first get articulated sort of most robustly. And, then, and, and that'll kind of get the major models on the board. So that'll just be the first part. And then the second part, I'll try to use some principles from Thomas Aquinas, of course, for the Thomistic Institute. To start to organize all those models together, and to see like sort of where they're complementary, where they might be pushing against one another, might be mutually exclusive or not. Um, and then at the and, and then at the end, I'll have I'll have some some stuff to say about a slightly different a kind of question that's adjacent to the atonement that gets pulled into it, um, but it, it deals with sort of separate issues. So I'll try to sort of organize some of the other stuff that gets associated with the atonement. Does that make sense? All right. So. So let's move. So I just want to start with um, kind of biblical, biblical imagery, the, the main biblical imagery. You could spend a whole, you know, you could spend, write a whole book about this, books and books about this. But the, the big things in the background for Christ, what Christ is doing in the New Testament come from the Old Testament, right? And so there's a few major things. One is the idea of sacrifice, right? So you have, yeah, I won't even number these. So this is, we'll just, we'll just call this like sort of biblical background. You have sacrifice. And sacrifice, there's, there's, well, there's different kinds of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The most important sacrifice for what Christ does is what? Anybody? Any guess? What, what, what Old Testament sacrifice is like the most important one for setting up what the cross is? Does anybody have any thoughts? What, yeah, what do you think? Uh, the lamb of Passover. Passover. Passover sacrifice, right? The Passover lamb. Which is, yeah, come on, right? The lamb of God. Why? When Jesus is called the lamb of God, what is that referring to? It's not, it's actually not the temple sacrifices of the old covenant, which are goats and bull's blood or heifers, things like that. The lamb is the Passover lamb. Passover, it's a good explanation about the Passover, is when the Jews are enslaved in Egypt and the the plagues happen. The last plague is the angel of death to take the life of the firstborn of everybody in the land of Egypt. The Jews sacrifice the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the lintel. Uh, which is sort of like a cross. Wow, interesting. And then the angel of death passes over the houses, houses of the Jews that have the blood of the lamb on their door. And then they eat the lamb. And then they eat unleavened bread and go out into the wilderness to escape the Egyptians. So that's the Passover sacrifice. Um, so you have Passover. You have other sacrifices too, which are also connected to the cross. Um, so Passover, the Passover lamb stuff is all over the New Testament. The Gospel of John is very big on this the Lamb of God title comes especially from John and the Johannine literature, the book of Revelation is all about this stuff, the Lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world Um, but you have these other sacrifices sin offerings and trespass offerings and things in in Leviticus and the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews applies this to um, to the cross explicitly those are offered by the high priest, Christ is the high priest offering himself in the, uh, in the sin offerings. So this is in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, especially. And then there's other images, too, that get picked up, some from the Psalms, um, besides sacrifice. So you have uh, some from the Psalms, and some especially from Isaiah. So if you guys know the book of Isaiah, sometimes traditionally by the fathers, it's called the fifth gospel sometimes, because there's so much about Christ in Isaiah. A lot of the famous passages you'll know about a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's from Isaiah. Lots of stuff like that. Um, but the most important one for the, the atonement is the suffering servant passage. So I'll, I'll read, this is Isaiah 53. This is, if you haven't heard this before, it's very, it should, it should sound familiar. So this is, not, this is Isaiah writing well before the time of Christ. But he talks about, about this man who is to come. And he says, he was despised and rejected by man by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. And then it just keeps going on from there. That's just a brief snippet. So you've got the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Um, and then there's of course a lot of other stuff too, there's the binding of Isaac, there's all the stuff in the Old Testament is read by the church as referring typologically to Christ so these are just highlights, but you also, I'll, I'll leave this more general, you also have just kind of like redemption language redemption language of, uh, and sort of rant, ransom language so you're redemption, you're redeeming a slave Ransom, you're buying back somebody from servitude, things like that. We're in servitude and we're bought back by Christ. Okay, that's biblical stuff. But it's, it's not systematized in the Bible either. And these, these, these images are overlapping. Often in the New Testament, they'll be pulling on this stuff and just sort of like lumping it together. And even here, it's sort of lumped together. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is called, he's compared to a lamb. And so it's like, well... Is he supposed to be the Passover sacrifice? That, that connection isn't made in the Old Testament, but then it gets made and sort of thrown together in the New Testament. So, so, so how, does the, how do we start to think about this systematically? Um, so there's a few models that emerge in the early church. Oh, now I have to go right to left, which is annoying for people who aren't used to doing Hebrew. But we'll do, we'll do early church here. Uh, or maybe we can, we can do it all vertically. So we'll go in the early church. Three models. First, you have oh number what's called the Christus Victor model. In Latin, just for like the victor Christ, victorious Christ. Very prominent in lots of the early fathers of the church. Christ is victorious. He conquers the devil, especially the devil. We're under the service of the devil. Christ comes in and conquers the devil and takes us back from him. Pretty straightforward. But it maps a lot of the like king and sort of warrior image of Christ. Christ comes out as kind of a warrior. Um, One thing, oh actually I shouldn't have done it this way. I'm discovering. So here's what I'm gonna do. One way to think about these different models, and this will help us organize them in a minute, is to think is to ask two questions. First question, what is the problem that Jesus solves? What is he addressing? Is he addressing the fact that we are enslaved by the devil? Is he addressing the fact that we die? We're subject to death. Is he addressing the fact that we are corrupt, we have corrupt wills, that we can't will what is right? Is he addressing some other thing? There's lots of ways of cashing out what the main problem that Christ has come to address is. Christus Victor, the problem is... We're under the devil. We're controlled by the devil. That's the main way. And of course, that has consequences. That means we can't do what we want to do because the devil is sort of has us corrupted in his service. So uh, the devil is the problem. Second question. This is the problem column. Second question. What, what about the, the life of Christ, broadly conceived, about what Christ comes down and does, Where does the stress fall for what Christ does? So, like, where does the work really happen most intensely? Does it happen just by him becoming human? Just by the fact of the incarnation? Is that what does, like, a lot of the salvation work? Does it happen by his death? Where we're really saved is the death. Does it happen at the resurrection? Does it happen at the ascension? Obviously, everybody's going to want to say, well, you know, in some sense, like, the whole life, the whole career of Christ does stuff. But different models will emphasize different parts of the life of Christ in different ways. So, so we'll just say, yeah, we'll just say, uh, wait, we'll just say the we'll saving we'll event. Saving event. So, in Christus Victor, Christ, Christ gives himself to the devil. He goes to war with the devil on the cross, in some sense. And he's even, his death, he sort of takes on death. He encounters death by dying. But that's not the victor, right? The point is that it's, he conquers. He conquers the devil. He goes to hell. He steals, back, steals us back from hell. So the, the real, the, what really saves us in Christus Victor is the triumphant Christ, the resurrected Christ. It's the resurrection that does the work. Again, extremely common. And obviously, you know, in the Bible, you can find all sorts. Paul's constantly saying stuff about how, like, oh, it's, we're saved by the cross. Oh, we're saved by the resurrection. If we didn't believe in the resurrection, we would be more, more pitied than all men. Things like this. And so Paul, the, the biblical writer, putting the emphasis in different places all the time. And so it's a little hard to know, like, well, which one's, the most, which one's actually the most important? It's like, well, I don't know. Who do you ask and when do you ask them? You're going to get different answers. Okay, that's Christus Victor. Again, that runs through a lot of the early church. And you can see they're getting it right out of Scripture. Second model. Um, This one is like adjacent to Christus Victor, and it's sometimes classed with it. Ransom, the ransom from the devil theory. Here, the idea is that this is especially associated with Origin of Alexandria. The idea is that, look, if if God just stole us from the devil, that would be kind of unfair to the devil. Like, the, the devil got us, in some sense, fair and square, because we chose to go with him. We chose to go with the devil. And God can't just, like, take him back in the way in Christus Victor, where it's, like, theft. So what God has to do is, is pay a ransom for us to the devil, and that's what's going on with Christ. Christ is the ransom, so you pick up on all the redemption ransom language, paid to the devil for us. Now, this is where it, this is where it gets tricky, because... What the devil doesn't realize is that Christ is also God. So once he takes Christ home and gives us back, he takes Christ back to hell and death, but death can't hold him, and the devil can't hold him. And so that's where you get So again, the problem is that we're in service to the devil, but now it's the devil that has a certain right over us. But then the devil can't hold Christ and sort of he agrees to take Christ, but he's, he's sort of tricked by it. Um, so the, fo- the focus here is especially, because the ransom, in terms of the actual taking from the devil, still remains the resurrection. But the ransom that's paid to the devil is Christ dying for us. So here you get a little bit more of the death of Christ as paying the ransom for our sins. OK, third model. This is, goes back to what Leo was saying. Um, This is kind of a broad one. In the the Eastern Church especially, but also in the Western Church, there's a strong emphasis on divinization. So why does does God become man? How does Christ save us? God becomes man that man might become God. This is the famous line from St. Athanasius, early 4th century. So this is, you could call it the divinization model. How does Christ save us? By divinizing us. By communicating the divine life, first from his divinity to his humanity, but then to, uh, by, through first baptism for them, especially the Eucharist, right? His, his divinity touches his humanity, but then his humanity touches our humanity and makes it divine. It's a very like touchy-feely kind of thing. It's like heat. Heat in the fire, and you put the iron in the fire, and the, and the iron glows with the heat of the fire. The heat of the fire is the divine life, communicated by the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, so here the problem is not the devil so much. Here the problem is, um, you might say it's it's sin in the sense of like disorder. It's the fact that we're we've lost the likeness of God that we had. The image of God in us is obscured by sin. We're we're sort of disordered, and the saving event here is going to be a kind of it's going to be sort of like incarnation because Christ becomes human there. And then also resurrection, when the divine life overflows to his whole. Because, you know, he doesn't really, he has the divine life in his soul before the resurrection, but it doesn't overflow to his body until the resurrection. So the incarnation and resurrection is kind of the emphasis here. So these are, these are sort of patristic images of the, of the atonement. Um, now I want to do a few medieval, these are medieval ones. So we'll jump Divinization, like I said, that was like 4th century Athanasius. Yeah, shoot, Dennis.
3: Wouldn't um, the divinization model also tend to emphasize the ascension into heaven, plot, becoming God? Uh,
2: Becoming becoming God? God? Becoming like God. For us, you mean? Yes. Um, Yeah, so there's a sense in which the the ascension uh, has Christ reign over us all, so we become part of the kingdom of Christ in that way. Um, The... Uh, so yeah, so there so there is some of that. I don't I don't know that it's quite as strong as the other as these other two. Um, like you can add stuff here. For instance, the harrowing of hell on Holy Saturday is also really important because that's when we get Adam and Eve are taken out of hell. So you can also add things like that. But yeah, that's that's helpful. I shouldn't I should do this differently. Um, other, other questions on this? Harrowing of Hell. Have you seen those icons of like Christ going down, like jailbreak in Hell, pulling up Adam and Eve and like all the other fathers, the uh, the patriarchs after them? Yeah. So that's that's very much uh, this kind of model. Okay, I'll keep moving. Four. Um, this this is Saint Anselm satisfaction. This is the great medieval model of the atonement. In some ways, still the uh, the preferred model for a lot of Catholic teaching. The Council of Trent, when it talks about these things, talks in terms of satisfaction. So, in that sense, it's binding on Catholics to believe that satisfaction is a model of the atonement. You can't deny it. Although it never says it's the only model. Satisfaction is the idea that that when you when we sin against God, it's not just that. Has to do with the devil. It doesn't have to do with the devil. It's, and it doesn't just have to do with the fact that we are disorder ourselves in some sense, that we've lost the divine life in ourselves. We've also offended God in some way. Even if we were able to reorder ourselves or even if God reordered us, there would still be an offense against God that has to be paid. There's some penalty due to sin. We've stolen something from God. We've dishonored him. And in order to make that up, you have to do satisfaction to God. You have to give satisfaction. Sort of like, we we still have this in like an old fashioned way with like duels, you know? It's like I demand satisfaction. That's what that's where the word comes from. For Anselm, Anselm actually gets the word um, from his own context as a Benedictine monk. So Anselm's a Benedictine monk and in the rule of Benedict, it talks about monks making satisfaction to one another. So when you offend another monk, maybe this isn't obvious, but Newsflash: Like if you're a monk, you're living with the same guys for your whole life, and you really get on each other's nerves. And so there's a lot of like offense and and uh, forgiveness involved in the life of a monk. That's part of why it's sanctifying. Um, and so Benedict, when he sets up his monasteries, he has he has ways of dealing with this. And the ways are of satisfaction and you do satisfaction. It's not just enough to say like, oh, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, right? You've actually like disordered your relationship, and so you need to you need to reorder that. Uh, in sort of compensating giving recompense for these previous sins the satisfaction the way you do that is especially by by lowering lowering yourself in some way by like you know you can even think of it in like a physical way you might like bow prostrate yourself before the person kiss their feet as a kind of acknowledgement and a kind of lowering of yourself to make up for the ways in which you've elevated yourself above that person benedict will sometimes talk about that like putting yourself like like uh, sleeping on the floor at the person's cell, things like that. Um, But of course, in the case of sin, this is where Anselm goes, in the case of sin, we offend God, whose honor is infinite. So there's something kind of infinitely offensive about sin, because we've turned away from the infinite dignity of God. And so we can't do satisfaction for our sins for Anselm. That's the problem, because we can't make recompense that's great enough to deal with our sin. Only somebody who is both us, because we are the ones who sinned, so we need, to do the, we need to do satisfaction, both like us in that, but also has a kind of infinite dignity can do that. So you need God to become man. He's man, so he's sinned. He's like implicated in our sin, but he's God, so his life can be satisfactory. So again, the problem here is actually, is sin in the sense of a kind of debt of sin. Sin as debt. And the debt has to be paid. And again, the way the debt is paid here is by a kind of like suffering of punishment in a certain way. some wouldn't say quite punishment, but a kind of suffering, a kind of embracing a suffering, a voluntary embrace of suffering. So again, you get a focus on the passion, the suffering of Christ, and then especially the death of Christ with Okay, five. Generation, two generations after Anselm, you have a guy named Peter Lombard, uh, Peter Abelard, who's kind of like a bad boy of theology. Um, there's a reason he's not a saint. These guys are saints, the other ones. Origen actually is a kind of an in-between case too, but uh, most of these other ones are come up with by saints. Abelard's not a saint, and he's kind of a, if you read his life, he's kind of like a skis ball. Um, and that's also true in his theology. Like he's, a, he's one of these guys who's like super clever, but not necessarily very wise. Um, but he comes up with his own theory of the atonement, or he really, like, standardizes some ideas that are there before. He says, he denies most of the other stuff that goes before. And he says, no, what happens, what Christ does is he, he teaches us, basically. He gives us an example. He teaches us by his example. And he gives us, like, explicit teaching. So it's a kind of moral example. Tea. Moral example view. But also teaching... And, and there's a kind of like legislating side. He gives us new rules, right? Which isn't just teaching, it's also kind of legislating. So there's things like that. But, but you can see basically, this is a pretty thin view. Like a prophet can kind of do this. And in Abelard's view, the worry, everybody has the worry that it's like, that doesn't seem like Christ is quite doing enough. But on the other hand, everybody also says, yeah, Christ definitely does that. That's part of how Christ saves us. So here, the problem is, is something like our ignorance, right? Maybe sin in the sense of ignorance, but it's especially our ignorance of how to act, so that we get a teaching, and then we can respond to it. Kind of on our own, kind of with our own will, and overcome sin. And again, the saving event is going to be Christ's ministry and teaching. So it, it has less to do with the death. I mean, he, he still has ways to accommodate the death, but teaching, ministry. So it's really like the, the life, the public ministry of Christ that does a lot of the work. All right. I'll put, in, I'll put in a little plug for Aquinas here. Aquinas mostly adopts the satisfaction view of the atonement, which ends up being the, by far the most influential one in the Middle Ages. But he also has this other stuff running, especially divinization and then and some Christus Victor. Um, but he kind, of, he kind of makes the satisfaction stuff a little more subtle and uh, distinguishes it out more clearly. He has this view of Christ meriting a reward for us on the cross. So it's not just that Christ sort of pays the debt for our sin, but even if we hadn't sinned, um, we still wouldn't deserve the beatific vision. We wouldn't deserve the fate that God has in store for us, like the destiny that God has for us. Uh, but there is a sense that in which once Christ comes, he merits for us that end. by, by Essentially by doing such great works of love. And again, they don't have to be works of love on the cross or works of suffering love. That's already getting more towards satisfaction, like you have to pay a penalty. Merit can Merit, be, Aquinas says that Christ merits infinitely from the first moment of his conception. Because he has such grace in him, such charity, such love of God, and so merit doesn't require suffering, but it does give give us some claim on what we're going to be. So that's part of Aquinas again adds that to the satisfaction view. Um, the uh, so the the problem here is, is something like like unworthiness. We are not worthy to be divinized. And the, uh, the focus is, is, again, on Christ's sort of charity. And again, Christ, Christ's life in a certain respect. In his, his whole life, everything he does is done with that kind of charity. So the death, the passion and death are really sort of on the satisfaction side. But his, his whole life is lived as a kind of meriting of, of beatitude. Okay, seven, this is the last one I'll do. This is the great, this is this is Calvin. Oh, again, another one who's not a saint. Um, Even farther from it than Abelard, I'm afraid. So Calvin has penal substitution. Has anybody heard of penal substitution? I don't know how many. When my students come in, that's like the standard view. It's like, how does Christ save us? Oh, yeah, okay. He's like, we have committed sin, so we're under the wrath of God, under God's judgment, and he is going to punish us for our sin. But instead, Christ comes, takes the punishment, so that we can go free. This is called penal substitution. It kind of emerges out of the satisfaction theory, but it's different from it. Penal substitution. It tends not to be emphasized by Catholics. It's a more Calvinistic view. But there are, it's not condemned by the church, and there are Catholics who do adopt it. So if anybody knows the great French preacher, Archbishop, Archbishop? Bishop Bossuet, um, who's influenced by Calvinism in certain ways, he, he, is, he leans into penal substitution. Again, the problem here is something like the debt of sin. But it's really sin is sort of punishment. A debt of, debt of punishment. And the emphasis, again, is on the cross. cross and the death of Christ. So one of the things Calvin does is he takes the stuff about Holy Saturday, which is in here that on Saturday, Holy Holy Saturday is after Good Friday, Christ is dead. He gets buried in the tomb. He descends, his soul descends into hell. And that's the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter called Holy Saturday. And what does Christ do on Holy Saturday? Well, in this model, he goes down to hell and he takes all those people out of hell, all the righteous of uh, Israel and of the nation's before the coming of Christ, get pulled out of hell, including like Saint Joseph, pulled out of hell, on at the harrowing of hell. So this Holy Saturday is this kind of like triumphant victory, battle and victory. Here, Calvin says, "Yeah, Holy Saturday, super important." But what what does Christ do on Holy Saturday? He goes down into hell and suffers the pains of hell for us. So it's not like Christ going down there and winning a victory and having a great time. It's Christ paying the punishment and suffering all the weight of hell in his soul for us so that we don't have to. So this is also Holy Saturday. Okay. That's like 20 minutes on all the major theories. There's like a lot of sub-theories which we can get into too, like the moral example teach teaching theory there's like sub theories of that but this is kind of the schematic of major ones and there's other ways of like cutting them apart but this is pretty standard are we tracking so far does this make sense you can see why it might be kind of confusing again I've listed them here more in chronological order than in any kind of philosophical or theological order that remains to be done okay we good any questions questions about that Okay, so now I want to go over here and keep those, but I want to read a little passage from Aquinas. Can I go over here and still be recorded? Do I need to stay in one? You can move the phone too. Clever. Working. Yeah. Can I put yeah, it right? It. I can put it right there. How about that. Okay, this is from the Summa, the Suma, the Summa Theologica, um, Part Three, Question Fifty Six, Article One, and he's asking about. Um, he's talking about the causality of the resurrection. This is what he says. This is in re- re- reply to the fourth objection. Considered on the part of their efficiency, which is dependent on the divine power, both Christ's death and his resurrection are the cause both of the destruction of death and of the renewal of life. But Christ's passion, death, is furthermore a meritorious cause as stated above. Okay, I assume that won't make sense to most people. <laughs> this, is, this is how Aquinas works. But I, I, I sort of was like, I'm sort of a revert back to the Catholic faith, and my reversion was sort of, like I just started reading Aquinas, and it just didn't make sense for like two years. Um, but I just kept reading it, and eventually it like starts to make sense. Because it's all there. It's all there like very briefly, but you have to know the terminology. So what is he saying? He's saying that Christ's death and resurrection have a twofold causality. They cause our salvation in two different ways. One is as an efficient cause, by way of efficiency, and the other is as a meritorious cause. He'll add some other causal language too around this, but these are the kind of structural, structuring ones. What is an efficient cause? What is a meritorious cause? So an efficient cause is, is closest to what we generally think of as cause like you throw the billiard ball into another billiard ball and it hits it and it makes it go. That's an efficient cause. So that, that, that one in, in some sense is easy. The, a meritorious cause is this a, a, is a sort of like, what, what makes this thing just? What makes the outcome right or just or appropriate in that sense? So you might think of it this way. You could ask, why, why is that guy rich? And it could be one way to answer the question, the why answer. The why question is the one that's answered with cause language for Aristotle and then Aquinas, right? When you say why, then you, in response you say because. You give a cause. But there's, you, there's different kinds of because answers. So why is that guy rich? Well, one way to answer it is people give him a lot of money. They gave him money. That's an efficient cause. Oh, he has money because people gave him money. That's, that makes a certain amount of sense. But actually... For some ways of asking that question, that's actually not very interesting. There's another way of answering the question where you say, why is that man rich? Because he worked for it. Because he deserves it. Because he got rewarded in justice for what he did. That's a meritorious cause. He merit. there's a kind of like, it's an appropriate thing that he would get it. So similarly with our salvation, our riches, you can ask the question about Christ in two ways. Or you can answer the question about Christ in two ways. One is that Christ gives us the salvation. Actually, that's the second one, if you feel like logically. The first is Christ makes us worthy to receive salvation. He's a meritorious cause of our salvation. The second is he actually gives us salvation through his actions. So this is important. This is, this is going to be the structuring principle here. Christ is a meritorious cause in some sense, in some logical sense first. He makes us worthy. And then he's an efficient cause. He actually gives it to us. So this is going to be helpful because it's going to allow us to organize all these things. And here's, here's what I'm going to suggest if I get this right. So meritorious cause. If you look at here, Christus Victor. And I'm going to go down here and then I'm going to do Christus Victor. Christ takes us from the devil. He saves us in that way. He is the efficient cause of our being delivered from the devil. Meritorious cause, he ransoms us from the devil. He makes, it, he makes it just that we are delivered from the devil. He could just take us from the devil and not pay any kind of ransom for us. But that would be unjust in a certain way. He wouldn't earn our salvation in that sense. He would just produce it. So this so ransom, ransom from the devil. He's a kind of meritorious cause of our salvation. He makes it appropriate that we are delivered from the devil because by paying a price for us. But then the efficient cause, oh yeah, and also he just like divinization. Divinization in some sense is just the summit. It, it's like the classic efficient cause. Boom. He touches humanity with the fire of his divinity. We touch his like fire, his illuminated fired humanity. It makes us divine divinization. We are given, you know, our mortal bodies come in contact with his immortal immortal body, and we are given immortality through that. Um, And then here also, by teaching us, Christ doesn't, doesn't make us worthy of the new knowledge. He gives us the new knowledge. So the kind of example teaching stuff, that's an efficient cause. Notice also here, putting these three here, this is for for people who care about these kinds of patterns in the way that the church traditionally cares about these patterns. In the garden, the Garden of Eden, to which we are restored by Christ. We're we're restored to something greater, but we're restored, in some sense, to the garden as to something greater. What do we lose in the garden? Well, one, we have the serpent. We're enslaved by the serpent, and we lose access to the tree of life here, which we get back through the immortality of divinization, and we lose ex- access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which, for some of the early fathers, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. It's a good thing that God wants to give us, but we aren't ready for it. So when we, we take it too soon, and that's what the fall is. God, it was always God's plan to give it to us. Um, this is in Irenaeus, Gregory of Nazianzus. God always wanted to give us a fuller knowledge of good and evil, but we had to be ready for it, and we just took it too soon. So what then, on the cross the new tree, the new tree of life, the new tree of knowledge, the fruit of the cross that we eat is the body of Christ, right? Christ is hanging on the cross as fruit on a tree. And it's these trees that we are originally supposed to have to be like God. All that was right. We just did it too soon. And so the efficient cause, Christ restores that, takes us back from the serpent, gives us the tree of life, gives us the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Boom, okay. So these actually, you can see, these aren't, Exclusive, these actually work really well together as, as models of the atonement. Meritorious cost, ransom, satisfaction, right? Satisfaction, we pay back the debt of sin so that we, it's now appropriate for us to be divinized because we don't owe God the debt of sin. Merit goes here, pretty obviously, most straightforward one. And then penal substitution is also it. same same logic as satisfaction. If God, the idea here is if God just like divinized us without doing satisfaction, he could do that, but it would be sort of inappropriate. He would just like make us better, but there'd still be the sense like, yeah, but no, it, we aren't ready to be made better yet. We aren't ready to be made better yet because we haven't paid back the debt. We still have, like, there's this kind of offense against God that hasn't been undone. Okay, does that make sense? You can see here, this kind of, this, these three sort of work together. Because Ransom is thinking about, like, well, what about the devil? Like, what is, does God owe something to the devil? There's a lot of dispute in the tradition, including Anselm himself thinks like, God doesn't owe anything to the devil, that's ridiculous. God owes things to himself. The debt that we owe isn't to the devil because the devil doesn't have any right over us because the devil's unjust. God owes a debt to himself, so that's why you satisfy. But Aquinas comes in, he's like, well, there's some sense in which God still might like want to do justice to the devil. So we can still hold on to ransom language. So this is about God doing justice to the devil in some extended sense. This is about God doing justice to himself for the sins we've committed against him. And this is about God doing justice to himself to make us worthy to receive these gifts that go beyond sin, the gifts of grace that go beyond just restoring us from sin, but actually induct us into this higher divine life. So these three go together a little bit. It's a little less clear what to do with penal substitution. And again, the Catholic tradition has never been totally comfortable with this stuff. It's, It's much more of a fringe view. And it seems like maybe this is just like a a different way of doing satisfaction. Like these are kind of just different models where it's like, no, you're not doing satisfaction kind of voluntarily for your sin. You're just getting punished for it. Whereas in satisfaction, the emphasis is very much on voluntarily, out of love, suffering these things to make make it up to this person that you love. Penal substitution is like, doesn't really matter if you love them so much, although Calvin has qualifications around this, but really what matters is just that you, you feel, you, you experience the punishment, and that deals with it. So these may, be, these may be kind of in conflict, these models here, but these three at least go together. And maybe, you know, maybe you can find a way to make those work. I'll leave that as an open question. Okay. Do I want to do a little more? Um... I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave it there, and you guys can bring up some other stuff. There's, there's obviously more to say, but I'll leave it there so that we have some time for questions. All right, thank you. <laughs> Shoot, Leo. First, uh, if you can please repeat the questions once you hear them, so the microphone's able to come up, up. We appreciate it. Uh, second. He says, repeat the questions. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, uh, second
0: is. It seems like within the penal substitution and of atonement, there's almost this division within the Trinity where you have, uh, as it's presented frequently, there's this case where the father is kind of beating on, the father is almost kind of beating on or punishing the son uh, somehow. And is this, how, is this, are you, is it possible to square this with the triune theology or is this? Because this seems, to me, yeah. sorry, ask, to me this seems like it divides the
2: Trinity almost as far as like tritheism or three different beings. Yeah. Um, so the question is, do you do you want to, if you're going to run the penal substitution stuff, do you want to make the division between the Son and the Father or do you want to make the division between divinity and humanity? Because you can run it where it's it's Christ's humanity that suffers, and Christ's humanity suffering pays back Christ's divinity because God is owed the, the recompense, right? So when God punishes, it's like Christ as God punishing himself as man in some sense. So you, that, can, that can deal with the Trinitarian worries, but then potentially you get a little bit more Christological division, and after the Reformation, there's a big debate between the Calvinists, who have more of this penal substitution theory, and the Lutherans, who don't have it as much, and the Lutherans have a much more unified Christology, and the Calvinists end up having a a little bit more of a bifurcated Christology, Um, but but the bifurcated Christology can help solve your worries. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, that's true, but you have to be careful because there is only one will in God, in the Trinity. Yeah. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share one will. Not one in the sense of, like, they always agree. They're really simpatico. One, like, numerical identity, to yeah. the degree that you can have numerical identity in God, which is kind of a weird situation. But that... What's that? I
0: think the word
2: will... Be yeah, but the will is helpful because there's a lot of technical theological language around it that can be helpful. So when, um, in the early church, Maximus Confessor, who's in this controversy about the wills of Christ, talks about this, the agony in the garden. And the idea, the, the sort of solution that he gives, St. Maximus, is that God, so Christ has a human will that's distinct from his divine will. His divine will is not distinct from the Father's will. So there's one divine will, which in Christ is paired with a human will. And the human will for Maximus, especially the later Maximus, is always aligned to, God, to his divine will. Yes. But that's the... So Maximus is after Chalcedon, where it's already said Christ has two natures. So because Christ has two natures, he has a divine will that goes with his divine nature, a human will that goes with his human nature. What Maximus says, though, about the the way in which Christ can sort of like have a will that doesn't seem to be aligned with the Father's will is that it's not the divine will, which is here. It's not even the human will. It's this kind of natural willing or passions that we have. So it's will kind of improperly speaking, where it's like, At some level, like, your natural being doesn't want to die. That's not a bad thing. That's just very appropriate for you as a natural being. And in that sense, you can speak of natural will or a natural passion. But this natural passion, what happens in the crucifixion or at Gethsemane, is that this kind of, like, potentially wayward part of our natures is subordinated to Christ's human will in the way that it will also be for us, in the way that you see in the martyrs. So that's what's going on there, is Christ is sort of, like, tying these two things together. Through the through the temptations, um, and so that so that this can also be tied to this because these two are always tied together. Anyway, that's the that's the that's the situation. Go ahead. I'll... Without Christ, you are slave to the devil. Yeah, that's right out of scripture. Now, what is that? It doesn't mean like demonic possession. It's not like everybody who's not, not baptized is like possessed by demons. Uh, it's slave to the devil in a more general sense, which is like, you know, you can't do good on your own. You're, sl- you're, you're totally controlled by your sin. So you can't, it's not that you, you can, you can do some natural goods, but you can't do anything that's meritorious of heaven. And um, you can't, in the whole of your life, you can't avoid sin. So not everything you do has to be sin, but you, you, there's no way you can live a whole life without sinning, and you can't get out of that. So you're, you're subject to the devil in that sense, where he has influence over you in a way that's not, that's not counteracted by like angels and stuff with sufficient force to overcome it, until Christ. Once you get, you know, once, once you get Christ, then the, then the whole thing changes. That's the point. Of Christus Victor. Does so that make sense? Does that help? You just don't like that.
1: I, I was just asking. Um, yeah. But I'm also curious because like in scripture it says we are made in the image and likeness of God. So wouldn't that make us inherently good? But is it just the stain of original sin that makes us controlled by the devil?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're image and likeness but then we one way we work, work this out that is in the early church, early fathers, is that we retain the image but lose the likeness. So there's some kind of damage to the, that original image and likeness, and part of the damage is being enslaved to the devil, which you see, you know, through the serpent, etc.
3: Yeah? So with the three efficient causes, Christus, Victor, divinization, and example, it seems like there are insufficient causes because none of them actually require Christ to die for any of that. Yeah. So it seems like you really have to have one, that pair them with one of the meritorious causes for it sufficient
2: to explain why Jesus, that's what he does. Yes, so that's, that's right, but slightly overstated. It's overstated because none of these are actually sufficient causes. So Aquinas says, Anselm says, actually, you have to have the God-man to be saved. There weren't a God, God couldn't do it any other way. And after him, in the next generation, Peter Lombard, and then basically everybody else, including Aquinas, who says, like, no, that's too strong. God, if God wanted to just, like, zap us with the Holy Spirit to save us, he could do that. That's in God's power, but it wouldn't be—it wouldn't be fully fitting. It wouldn't sort of like be as good of a as good of a story, so it wouldn't be as befitting and glorious to salvation as as having all this fittingness. And so, in as much as this is not like a, these aren't necessary arguments, but they're just a kind of fittingness arguments. Yes, you're right that these things tend to emphasize resurrection especially incarnation, other things, but Christ triumphant, right? Communicating. Nobody wants to be communicated the death of Christ to them. You want the life of Christ communicated to you, the resurrection. So these tend to emphasize the resurrection side of the equation, and these tend to emphasize the death side. And that's why they work well together, because it's like, you know, seems like you need both. seems like both are really important to what's going on in the New Testament. Yeah?
1: Okay, I have another question about Particularly, and maybe this is getting a little too much into the work of theodicy and suffering and God's goodness and all of that, but I'm surprised to hear that it's not outrightly rejected by the Catholic Church, because the way that I'm, it's always been presented to me is somewhat more of what Leo was saying of it being that the wrath of God needs to be taken out somewhere on something, and Jesus was there, so there's the wrath, and so then it's, like, the debt is paid. So how do we hold that model if we also simultaneously believe in an all good god is it like something along the yeah. lines of to like divine justice or like this is necessary and so we we'll like we'll take we'll take a loss basically
2: yeah so the question is i have not been repeating the questions i'm sorry Mea culpa it's the question is um, doesn't penal substitution depend on a kind of excessively wrathful view of God and therefore should be written out of the faith, essentially. Um, And the answer to that is that the reason you get... I mean, the reason Calvin has the wrath of God language is that it's in Scripture. And Anselm is already... With the satisfaction stuff, Anselm is already trying to accommodate that, where you have God's wrath against sin, and satisfaction is supposed to satisfy God's wrath against sin. It just doesn't do it by, like, punishing this innocent person. It does it by having this innocent person voluntarily offer himself up out of love. So you get—it's a little more—you get a little more of the love on the on the Jesus side, um, which is why it's a, it's a little kinder or gentler. But you still have the wrath stuff. It's still trying to do justice to that wrath language, which again is out of Scripture—not just out of the Old Testament, but Paul talks about it in Romans and stuff. It's it's in the New Testament too. It's not—it's interestingly—it's interesting—it's not that prevalent in Scripture, but it is there. Um, So maybe you don't want to make it that prevalent in your theory of the atonement, but you also need it there. So that's how it ends up working out. And yeah, the the point is like, God is wrathful against sin. Um, Even on penal substitution, I should say, it's not, the wrath isn't the most fundamental thing because if it were just wrath, then the father would never send the son, even on penal substitution. So there's always a love behind and sort of encompassing the wrath on any of these accounts, even for Calvin. Yeah.
0: So how, uh, again, on hill substitution, uh, how... Um,
2: this is, like, the least important one for Catholics, people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, how important is that Holy Saturday element to it? Because, like, that, that part seems to be in contradiction to the description of Christ's ascent to hell in the Catechism, which isn't a dogmatic work, but it is
2: still yeah, some, a magisterial some, work. Yeah, and some people say it's, it should be treated as, as uh, infallible. Because um, the Catechism, you're saying, gives a much more of this kind of Christus Victor yeah, taking us out of Yeah, so the, the question is, um, is, the, is Calvin's view of Holy Saturday consistent with the Catechism? Um, I'd have to look at the Catechism again. You do get, does anybody know Hans Urs von Balthasar? Great 20th century, yeah, theologian, who does kind of Calvin-like things with Holy Saturday? And this is before the Catechism is written. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't, people in, there's a lot of Balthasarians who read the Catechism and they don't take it to reject von Balthazar's view. It might be, uh, I'd have to look at it again. I don't remember what it says on Holy Saturday. It might be just one of these things where, you know, it's, it says one thing about Holy Saturday, but you could also see this other thing going on there too. It doesn't, it's not necessarily exclusive. Um, but you read it maybe as more exclusive. I mean, it would be appropriate, if you're going to talk about Holy Saturday just in a catechetical way, to emphasize the thing that, like, everybody always says about Holy Saturday and has always said, which is that it takes, it's the victory of Jesus to take people out.
0: I was specifically, the, the clear distinction it makes between Abraham's bosom and him specifically entering into the righteous side of hell, it, it ties back to his parable about... Uh,
2: Lazarus. Lazarus, Lazarus so and the first man. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
0: distinguishes Abraham's bosom from the side of uh, hell by the untrusted
2: and Yeah, here you go. Here's Dante's hell. Here you got limbo, which is where like Abraham goes. So it's in hell because you don't have the vision of God. That hasn't been opened up yet because Christ hasn't come. But it's not, they aren't like suffering. They're suffering what's called the pains of loss, the loss of the beatific vision, but not the pains of sense. So they aren't, like, being burned by the fire or whatever. And all the righteous people who are before Christ, like Abraham and Moses and all the people and St. Joseph, who are going to be saved, they have to wait here until Christ comes because Christ hasn't opened the gates of heaven to them yet. And so when Christ comes down, he comes, sort of comes down here, takes all these guys out, or at least all the, all the, like, righteous Jews and stuff, and takes them up to heaven. But he doesn't go down. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do all the, like, suffering stuff. Um, I will say to your, the, the first half of your first question, which I didn't answer, you don't have to have, you don't have to do the Holy Saturday thing to make penal substitution work. You can have it just be like he suffers death and the, and the like suffer you know, the passion, the sufferings of the passion and stuff and the forsakenness by God, right? But the people who like this whole, this kind of view of Holy Saturday, they read that God forsakenness, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They read that as, like, also speaking for his time in Holy Saturday. So they sort of, like, read that stuff together. But you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Other things? Yeah.
4: I'm just curious, um, because I learned that, right just now that it's like, okay, Adam and Eve were um, taken out of hell as well. Um, Do we know, like, the records, like, were, for example, like, Cain and Abel and, like, stuff, like, they not... Were they, like, are they still in hell or what? Are they not?
2: Well, okay. Abel, defi- Abel definitely Cain not. One, Cain, you know. Cain, yeah. Cain Abel in the liturgy, Abel is called Abel the Just. Abel the Just. He's held up as this model in the, um, in the traditional Roman Rite. So uh, you get uh, so definitely Abel and like Moses, and you know in Hebrews 11, there's this whole list of the heroes of the faith. And there's some weird ones in there who are like not great guys like Samson and stuff. But all those guys are saved. Um, yeah, Cain, I don't think, you know, the church has never definitively declared that any individual is in hell. Right. So we don't know about Cain, but you know, chances are probably not as good. <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the weird cases are like Enoch who gets like taken into heaven or Elijah. It's like, what's going on with that guy? Because is he in limbo? Christ hasn't come yet. So that's, a, that's, like an, that's kind of an open theological question, what you, what you want to say about that. But yeah, all the others, until Jesus, John the Baptist, until Jesus comes, they can't go to heaven. Even if, Thomas even says, if Mary were to have died, he doesn't say this, he doesn't use these words, but this is the message. If Mary were to have died before the cross and resurrection, she would have to wait in hell, even though she's sinless. Because, you know, sinlessness is not enough in some sense, because you're still, well, it, it's weird with Mary, but he, he, he does affirm that. And he affirms Mary's sinlessness by the time of her birth. Not the Immaculate Conception, but close. Yeah?
3: I, I, I don't want to Object. <laughs> it's scholasticism.
2: Do it.
0: Um, I feel like this applies an unnecessary dimension of time to like, extra-physical vocals, like doesn't need to be there like this idea that like like jesus appears and wrestles jacob debatably right like before he's incarnate of the virgin mary but he's still around in the universe somewhere doing things right yeah jesus it's a weird yeah it's a weird thing his incarnation as a man necessary to save the people in hell whose souls you could argue are just unbounded time when they die and then jesus just saves them from his non-time specific like godly absolute vantage point right like if he can appear or wrestle Jacob, dislocate the guy's hip, and he can, like, you know, it says Elijah's taken him to heaven. I don't see why he can't do the same thing earlier for all the people who died. Before well, I, so, like so I have th- to go to hell for a while. For Like, if you died at this time, it's 1,300 years. If you died this year, it's 200 years. At this time, it's 25 years in limbo. Like, it just, I don't see why you need to apply this whole timeline to hell. Uh,
2: yes. Yeah, so it's true that we, so the question is, like, like, what's the deal with this timeline of, like, a waiting period in hell before Jesus comes? Um, and it's true, there's not, we, you know, I has not seen, year has not heard. We don't really know about the temporality of how things work in these places after death. And the, the important point, which I take it you're trying to preserve, is that whatever the temporal ordering of these things, the causal ordering, the ordering of causes, is that Christ's work here is prior and their salvation, their entrance into heaven, is posterior. Yeah. So Christ's, Christ's work has to come first in some sense. How that works out in terms of temporal priority and posteriority is, is somewhat of an open question. So maybe Christ's later work has earlier temporal effects. And, and the tradition is committed to something like that when it talks about merit, because it's very explicit that with the Immaculate Conception, for instance. Christ's, Christ merits on the cross in his whole life, but especially on the cross, the grace that keeps Mary from sin. So Mary's preserved from sin because, in this meritorious cause sense, because of what Christ does later. So it's temporally, her, her sanctification is temporally prior, prior in time, but posterior, causally. It's causally subsequent to the cross. Um, so, you, so you can try to play with time in that way, and maybe that'll work. Um, but there's, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, like, weird constraints. Aquinas says that the temporality of hell, interestingly, the temporality of hell is basically like the temporality of this life, of, like, the world. It's the temporality of heaven that's different. So the temporality of the saints, how, you, how we experience time when we see the vision of God changes, and it becomes more like God's experience of time, although not exactly like it, but more like it. Um, but the people in hell, like, kind of experience time like us, so says Aquinas. Yeah.
1: Sorry, you like still ask, on the same topic of. Um, Penal substitution. Are the
2: in, what? Penal substitution? No. Okay. Like, <laughs> in limbo,
1: like, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, so are these holy men, women in limbo? Are they still being like tested in their faith for the like
2: awaiting? Their... It's not awaiting in the sense of testing. Okay. It's awaiting in the sense of like hanging out. Chilling. Ah. It's
0: like a cosmic
2: DMV. <laughs> yes, in a way. It, but not nece- not like the, the bad parts necessarily. They're waiting in hope. So they have hope. Because, you know, like Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand at last upon the earth. So these people knew. And the greater the fathers, the greater the patriarchs of Israel, the more that Augustine and Aquinas will say they knew about Christ. Um, So Abraham, like, maybe had some idea of what was going on when he was sacrificing Isaac. Not exactly, but that's often, it's like, it seems like maybe he kind of had a sense. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll go here and then there, yeah.
1: To like enter into sin and have sin's influence on the world, but how much power does he actually have, or is he?
2: I feel like he shouldn't really have any power if he's in his own form of hell. Question is, shouldn't Satan sort of like lose his power by falling? Because he like falls away from the good and the powerful that is God. Um, and, and like, look at Dante, right? So Satan's down here, he's frozen. Although interestingly, even in Dante, his wings are, are blowing on the water formed by his tears and freezing other people in hell. So his wings, so his, he is kind of doing something to keep people in hell. Um, is this an answer to that question? Did you want to? I
0: do have something to say. Um, when Christ is tempted in the desert, there's a few things that are said. At one point, Christ calls Satan the king of the air and the king of the earth, essentially. And then at another point, Satan says, hey, if you kneel before me, I'll make you lord over all the nations and all the armies. And Christ doesn't dispute that he has the power to do that. Christ seems to be completely comfortable with the idea that Satan's king of every nation all the riches in the world. It's all within his grasp. Um, and Christ rejects it nonetheless, but it doesn't seem to be like
2: something that he could do. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of bis- biblical precedent for this there. And then, you know, Paul's constantly talking about the, the powers and principalities. Right. Um, of girl, know, well, in, the, in the prophets. So, so the idea is uh, that's the kind of biblical evidence. The, the theological explanation for it is that when Satan falls, he doesn't lose. He's, you know, he's classically seen as like the, the highest angel, even, maybe. And he doesn't lose all of that gift. He just corrupts it. He perverts it. Um, so he loses power in the sense... Has anybody read Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy? Great book. Most, maybe most influential text on the, in the Middle Ages after, after the Bible. Boethius talks about how real power is the power to get what you want, what you desire. And what all desire is happiness. And so if you are wicked, there's a very real sense in which you lose power. In fact, you lose power in its most important sense, the power to get what you want, because you can no longer be happy. And so Satan has lost power in that sense. He can no longer be happy. He no longer has the power to, get people, to secure happiness. But he can have all these other kinds of powers that are consequent upon his, so his sort of station as the greatest angel. And so he doesn't lose those. Just like, you know... Look at wicked people in the world. You know, they they have lost the power to make themselves happy, to get what they want, what they most deeply want. But they got a lot of other power, you know, and that's kind of how yeah. the Bible talks about it. Babylon, right? So, so, so I, I it Jack, um, it's also, in the Book of Job, and if you
0: have time for the Testament, that tradition, um, words word used. To adversary and like when he talks to God about how he treats Job and like all these other events, um, he very much seems to have a role in the world. He is testing man for a purpose, and the Lord gives bounds to what he is and is not allowed to do to Job. And he very much like has these conversations and obeys God's commands. Like he very much is, he has like a leash and he's set. To
2: yeah, the Job stuff is interesting. Um, but on, on any account, you know, Satan has power at the allowance of God. God uses evil. He intends it for evil, but God uses it for good, all that stuff. Yeah. Corner.
5: Yes. Um, first, thank you so much for this lovely systemization. Um, I have a question as a biblical scholar. Uh-oh. One of the things that uh, I heard a lot of talk about in, in some of these theories was the idea of the harrowing of hell or Holy Saturday. And I was just curious. For these theorists, does the fact that the Gospels—it's basically not mentioned, right—is that kind of a minor inconvenience, or like, what do they? You know, <laughs> how it's much do so they care? Made out of yeah. so little, yeah. right, in like some obscure corner of Ephesians. It's in Ephesians, place. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious, like, how do these thinkers look back to the Gospels and? continue with the theorization of, of that, that
2: silence? Yeah, so the question is, like, <laughs> why why make all this uh, issue out of the harrowing of hell if uh, if it's barely in the Bible and not in the Gospels at all, which are, like, the most important part of the Bible, right? Um, and, yeah, part, part of that's just because it is in Ephesians, uh, so you have some biblical basis. And then, you know, it's a... it's, a, it's not just a sola scriptura thing. So the tradition from very early on takes it as this kind of important and imaginative element that they can develop. And so there's strong uh, early traditions around the importance of it. And that's why it ends up becoming a big thing.
5: Um, and is it, is it um, developed primarily in line with the Christmas victor um, theory? So,
2: yeah. Yeah, early. yeah. Uh, and then, again, origin. So origin's like, what, 220 or something? Um, so, uh, or, or maybe a little later, but he, so, uh, so the, the Christus Victor and ransom from the devil stuff gets like crossed over a little bit. And so some people will talk about, you know, he's going, he's like doing deals with the devil kind of thing. So you get that kind of stuff too. Yeah. Is that, that, is that St. Michael? Yes, it is. Nice. Indeed. Awesome. Yep.
4: <laughs> yeah. Wanted to ask, um, like this also connects back to how like, uh, God doesn't simply, um, jesus doesn't like steal from the devil he decides that right it's fair that um just if he were, if he like pays the devil's due um another so this is like this theological question that i wanted to ask is like does ultimately since like satan is a fallen angel like does God, is it, like, accurate to say that God loves even Satan, even though Satan was, you know, right? It's like Satan works against God, and therefore, like, because I even remember talking to him, he was obviously, like, a, he was not Catholic, he was a born-again Christian, but, like, back in, um, like, fifth grade, he's he's saying to me, like, you know, that even God even welcomes into his church, um, you know, even the devil, like, basically, and I just, that's ultimately my, my question is, like, does God, like, also, like, love the, like, the devil, like, even though there's a battle between the two of them? Like, what is the theological definition? Like,
2: yes, thing? yes. So, it's a great question. I mean, the, maybe the, the, the kind of primary um, theological and sort of metaphysical thing to see is that God and the devil aren't like this. So they don't fight like this. Like that would be more the devil and Michael are like this. Like they're angels, they're on the same plane. God is not on the plane, right? So God is in a different dimension entirely. And so God, God still one reason you know God still loves the devil in some sense is the devil still exists. Because mm-hmm. the God, for the devil to exist at every moment of his existence, God has to sustain him in existence, in his love. Just like that's why we exist in every moment of our existence. God is sustaining us in his love. And so that's also true of the devil. Now the devil, like, to the degree that the devil is able to reject God's sustenance and gift and grace and all that stuff, the devil does. And in that sense, there's kind of enmity. But again, this is the, like, futility of the devil. Like, what he's rejecting is not, what he's fighting against is not, like, another angel. What he's fighting against is the source of all his being. And so Satan is fighting against the source of all his being, which is God. So he's, like, he's, like, sort of destroying himself in his act, right? That's... That's in some sense, because right, really, you can't really like fight against God in some sense. You can only sort of destroy yourself. And that's what you see with the devil. Um, now, as to like whether the devil is part of the church, this, is, this goes back to Dante. Dante is super interesting. So what's happening to the devil in Dante? Uh, the devil is frozen in this lake, like someone who's being baptized, but the death, which is like the death of baptism, but isn't coming out of baptism. So he's sort of like half churched but isn't coming to the new life that baptism is supposed to bring you. The devil's eating, the devil has three heads and he's eating Judas and Brutus and Cassius, I believe. And, and it's this like Eucharistic moment. The, the Judas language is all about how like the flesh on Judas's back is scourged and stuff by the devil's teeth. It's a lot of like language equating Judas with Jesus' crucifixion. There's three, Judas is between two other thieves, as it were. Right, and so you've got this like anti crucifixion scene where jesus is eating i mean jesus satan is eating Ju- judas in this kind of like perverted eucharist so there's this weird like kind of like like perverted version of the church where the devil is kind of part of the church but he's like twisted it in this way that's terrible for himself um because it's like this like baptism that isn't light, isn't to life it's this eucharist that is to death that kind of stuff yeah Yeah, I mean, yes. So do the, what do the angels need out of this list? They don't need to worry about sin. So that the fallen angels can't be saved from their sins. There's various theological explanations for why that might be. But, but nobody thinks they can. And it, it's pretty explicit in the New Testament that it's, it's just for humans. Um, now, there is some sense in which the angels, that Christ, after Christ comes, he merits grace for the angels. And there's disputes about that. But there is a sense in which the angels continue to receive grace from God, and that God does that in view of what happens on the cross. So the Christ actually does do some of these things for the angels, but so He doesn't need to do satisfaction because the angels are, don't sin. Um, he probably doesn't need to teach the angels things like that. Um, again, divinization maybe, although it's it's actually kind of confusing how that would work. Maybe after the incarnation or after the resurrection or this is more plausibly to the point about Ephesians. After the ascension, Christ, so the the passage in Ephesians about why, where you get the descent into hell is that Christ goes down to the depths and then rises up to the heights. So it's this sort of descent but then ascent into the heavens in order to sum up all things in himself. And so it could be that with the ascension, Christ sort of like sums up the angels in himself too and becomes their sort of like the source of their divine grace as well. But that's more speculative. Mostly it's for human beings. Because again, God became man. That man might become God. Right? The angels are doing okay. Yeah? So. Uh, uh,
1: so oh, either of yeah. you. With the ransom theory versus Christus Victor, right? The, like the change from Christus Victor to the ransom theory is that oh, well, he wasn't paying the devil his due, right? So he wanted to, like, do rightly by
2: the devil in some sense
1: with the ransom Theory. But isn't the ransom Theory also still not really doing justice? Because, like, obviously God would know that the devil is not going to exact what he wants out of Christ's death. He knows he cannot contain Christ. So in a certain way, you could argue that it's like, oh, it's like he's kind of giving him the due of another person in exchange, a person's death in exchange but then he escapes it anyway. Like I feel like both of those you could argue arguably say that it's not really paying the devil any due because all still escape him anyway.
2: Yeah, so it's you what you often get is is that like part of this is um, the reason it's like giving the devil his due is that the devil freely agrees to it. So that's why it's considered fair. So the question is like isn't ransom still unfair to the devil because it's like Christ just gets out of it. It's not like he does any you know, it's not like he's really getting paid for it. But yeah, so you'll often get with this theory, um, this idea, well, the devil agreed to it, so it was fair. But you'll also get the side, which kind of undercuts the first thing, where the devil actually doesn't realize totally what's going on. So the devil sees Jesus, and it's like, ah, a human being, and I'm going to go after this human being. Um, and then it's like, oh, whoops, it's God. So there's, there's a famous, uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century talks about the cross as the fish hook of the devil. And it's baited with his humanity. So the devil just like sees the humanity and goes for it. Um, But the hook is the divinity. And it's like, you get pulled up. You get defeated. So that's the kind of idea that like he bites the, he bites this sort of like hidden, hidden life. Now, is that fair? Is it not? Um, That's somewhat open. Another way that it's talked about as like a kind of maybe a fair thing is that what happens is Christ isn't just a human being. He's an innocent human being. So... He sort of offers himself. He sort of like puts himself out there. But when the devil takes him, the devil's overstepping his bounds. Yes. So it was okay for the devil to take Adam and Eve because they actually sinned. Yes. That's kosher. But once the devil goes after this guy who didn't sin mm-hmm. and kills that guy, that, then, then all bets are off. The devil's yes. broken his contract. And that's when everything, okay. everything gets pulled back. Maybe yeah, yeah, Dennis. So
3: with merit and to a lesser extent satisfaction, you're basically you're in some sense thinking of humanity as a collective. Jesus enters into our humanity, and then by his merits, we humans as a collective are saved. Uh, receive yep. merits. Yep. But how does that work? How does Jesus doing something make the rest of us more worthy of?
2: Yeah, this is what I was going to, um, this is what I kind of cut off to have time, more time for questions. Which, and this will be the last question, so you guys, I'll stay, I'll stay after, but if you guys need to go, you can go. So the question is, how does merit, like, how does, we understand that it's Christ's merit, but how does it apply to us? How is, like, Christ's merit our merit? Um, and the idea, you know, the, 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 like, the big concept here is we're incorporated into Christ. We become part of Christ's body. So we, we form one individual with Christ in some sense. There's an, er, there's, there's an early idea from Irenaeus of Lyon, like 180 AD, um, called recapitulation. And it just gets it right out of Paul. And the idea is recapitulate, where capitulate, kaput, means head. So it's your, Christ is reheading up the entire human race. The first head is Adam. And then, but the Adam head goes poorly for us, so we get a new head in Christ. But there is a kind of unity, first in Adam and then in Christ, that explains the transfer of merit. The transfer of merit in Adam is through original sin. This is how original sin is transmitted because it's a, it's a kind of transmission of merit, because we form one, one kind of body in Adam, in some sense, through our genetic descent from him. And then similarly, uh, in Christ, we form one body through, through baptism, through the church. Um, and yet, yeah, you need that to work for merit. You need it to work for satisfaction. Like, in what sense, Christ doesn't actually sin. So in what, in what sense does he owe our sins? Well, he owes our sins because he's, he's like, you can think of it almost like household. Like he's a member of our household in some sense. And not just a member, he's like the chief member. So when your household does something wrong, I mean, Anselm's writing in the 11th century, so maybe it makes more sense then. We've become more individualistic maybe. Um, But Anselm places great stress that Christ doesn't just have to be a human being. He has to be a descendant of the line of Adam. He has to be in the house of Adam, as it were. And so you can give satisfaction for other people in your house, like Romeo and Juliet, you know? It's like the houses, right? If you read that, um, but notice a lot of these a lot of these are going to have that element where you have to you have to become part you have to be joined to Christ in some sense. There has to be some kind of corporate personality for it to work, um, and that's just. But I think that's just like baked into baked into Christianity that you that you aren't that individual because otherwise, like you could just save yourself. Okay? Shall we call it there? Thank you all. And then I'll stay back.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at wwwthomisticinstituteorg donate.